Welcome to this week's edition of San Diego Sessions. We're in studio with drummer, multi-instrumentalist, and composer Nathan Hubbard. to San Diego Sessions, San Diego's jazz podcast, featuring local artists, new releases, and more. Here are your hosts, Ian Tordella and Ed Kornhauser. Welcome to San Diego Sessions. I'm uh, one of uh, your intrepid hosts, Ed Kornhauser, and I'm joined in studio by my esteemed my esteemed colleague. This is Ian Tordella. <laughs> yes, this Nathan's is Nathan's over there laughing. This is Ian Tordella. We're here. <laughs> We're very professional. <laughs> We're here in the studio today uh, with Nathan Hubbard. Uh, Nathan has released over a dozen albums as a leader and is a two-time San Diego Music Awards Best Jazz Album winner. Uh, most recently for 2017's uh, Skeleton Key Orchestra, Furiously Dreaming. Furiously Dreaming. Furiously yeah. Dreaming. You kind of have to whisper it when you say it. Furiously Dreaming. There you go. Yeah, oh, nice. God. I nice. just gave myself chills right there. Yeah. There you go. Ooh. Deep. <laughs> All right. So first we have our, our normal top of the show. I have some uh, issues I need to address, some grievances, uh, some pressing questions pre- with Ed. Press and grieve away. This is our, our segment, This Versus That. So, the first, first one, uh, vocalist, iconic vocalist, Diane Shore, or Diane uh, Krall. Diane Shore or Diana Krall? That's a stretch. That's some... Uh, Diane Shore, I think. I like... I mean, I love Diana Krall's piano playing, and she's definitely a good singer, but she doesn't really inspire me that much as a singer. She She does very well. Uh, and she deserves a career, but um, and I love her piano playing. She swings and she accompanies herself so well, and her band's great. But I just love Diane Shore. All right, all right. Diane Shore. Ding, all ding, right. ding. I have to okay to qualify a little bit. Ten points for Gryffindor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next Touché. drummer and percussionist Billy Hart, or iconic blue note drummer Billy Higgins. That's kind of hard. That's pretty hard. Yeah, I don't know. It, if this is a, Can I do this one? Yeah, why don't I, pa- okay. I pass this one up to you? Celebrity guess this or that. They're both beautiful. I love Billy Hart, Nuwandishi, all that stuff. Uh, but you got to give it to Billy Higgins. Kind of iconic uh, game changer in terms of his work with Ornette. And then also the fact that he uh, was able to play with all these other people. And uh, had a pretty amazing career all the way up to the end. Like I saw him play in the late 80s and was absolutely destroying it. Um, so much respect to Billy Hart, but Billy Higgins, ding, ding, ding. Yeah, yeah. Team Higgins. For the overall body of work, gotta be Billy Higgins. Okay, here we go. This is a, this is the odd, the curveball. I think I've said legendary a bunch of times. Legendary swing and bebop tenor saxophonist Don Bias, or Miles Davis era percussionist Don Elias. Mm, Talk about two different people. I saw I saw Don Elias once, actually, at, in New York and at the Blue Note. I never we talk to... about this every time Don Elias comes up. Yeah. What was I... his nickname? Lungs? No, Hands. What was it? Yeah, Don Elias was amazing. <laughs> Lungs? <laughs> I thought that's what his nickname was. <laughs> As a conga player. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm going to go with, I'm gonna, for, for body work, as, uh, as Nathan said, I'm going to go with Don Elias. I, I'm sorry, Don Bias, excuse me. All right. And contribution to the music overall, even though I love I love Don Elias. Excellent. All right, that was This Versus That. Once again, we're here with our esteemed guest, Nathan Hubbard. And he's released a few albums this year, but uh, first one up, we're going to talk a little bit about his new record, Lattice Trust, with a quartet. But tell us a little bit about this recording, and then we're going to get right into the first track. Sure, sure. Uh, this was actually part, I put out two records simultaneously, which 
can sometimes work. It's sometimes a little sketchy, but um, the idea was that I had this live recording from L.A. with uh, Alex Klein on drums, Stuart Liebig on electric bass, G. Stinson on electric guitar, and myself on vibraphone, electronics. And we had been talking about putting it out for a while. And uh, and then uh, as I was working on this, um, I had done a gig with Vinnie Golia, and uh, that got recorded. So we did. I had these two recordings that both featured... Um, People from L.A., people that are a little bit older than me that I kind of think of as mentors and uh, people that I've played with quite a bit over the years. So I thought putting them out together made sense. So the first one is Lattice Trust, which was uh, recorded live in Eagle Rock in Los Angeles. Kind of actually thrown together gig, but the music turned out really good. um, uh, And uh, we ended up putting it out. All right, here we go with the title track, Lattice Trust. Thank <laughs> you. 
All right, and we're back. That was uh, Lattice Trust from uh, Nathan Hubbard's most recent record with the ER Quartet. And if, uh, if you don't mind me asking, why, what's the name be, or what's the meaning behind the ER Quartet? Well, I, uh, clearly it's impossible to come up with band names. Uh, the gig um, that that this recording is called from was in Eagle Rock ER, um, oh. and it's part of a. Uh, Alex Klein has been doing a series for I think. 25 years or maybe 20 it's the longest running like monthly series in la and he's been at a bunch of different places but they've been doing it in eagle rock for over 10 years now but it's also kind of ambiguous you know like er emergency room like there's a bunch of different things er could stand for i kind of like the fact that there wasn't like a firm i didn't want to just put it out as nathan hubbard because these guys are you know I think there's a nice group aesthetic where it's not just me as a as a um, sort of front man, you know, dominating the band. You just heard that like these guys are doing even as I was taking that vibraphone solo, people are doing very interesting shifts as a band behind me that wouldn't mm. normally happen instead of just okay, we're backing you up like they're totally like they're, uh, they're modifying what they're doing and and going with it. So, uh I thought some sort of band name would work and ER seemed to make sense. It's not the er quartet. <laughs> er. It totally should be. I'm going to refer to it from now on as the Nathan Hubbard er quartet. <laughs> um, yeah, there were some really interesting like shifts and in colors behind you. They they all all the players on it really have their electronic sensibilities dialed in really yeah, well. And yeah, can definitely. Really use some cool effects to color stuff. Loop. I heard a lot of looping. Yeah, Stuart especially is is sort of the king of the loopers. Um, I can't remember. Stuart's playing just just to reiterate uh, electric bass okay. or what he calls contrabass guitar because he uses an extended a six string bass and quite a bit of electronics. Most of the time when he when I play with him, he has. Um, chains of different loopers so not just one looper but where he'll loop something and then he'll uh reverse it or something and dump it onto a secondary looper and then go back and layer some more stuff on top of that wow and we also have a duo called tokes which is just drums and bass and we're both doing electronics me mostly running loops and he actually uses two ipads that he's using to loop stuff as well so it can get really and in that group, he actually uses a stereo rig, so he's panning huh. himself around. He'll do things where he'll create this texture over on the left, and then he'll pan himself over and start playing bass. And there's times you hear like two or three basses, and that's all done live. So that's super fun. GE2 has a really great sensibility, I was saying you know, earlier. Um, I mean, the guy's an amazing guitar player, but he plays the electronics more than he plays the guitar. Right. Um, and he- a lot of extended techniques from everybody... Like everybody's got their their bag of different, rather than just using fingers or picks, they're using uh, small bows and toothbrushes and things like that, so you can get different sounds. Yeah, we heard that sort of fast tremolo. It sounded like a, it reminded me of a a hummingbird or or a moth or something. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, I I'd have to ask G exactly what that was, but to me, it sounded like a tremolo pedal, a little bit of phaser, and then maybe like some sort of toothbrush or something to get that. That fast sound from the strings. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's that was, cool. That really well, cool. what I, I really like about this recording is is you guys, like you're saying, you're not just. It's not like I'm taking a solo and it's accompaniment. It's almost. It's like you guys are stacking up different textures. Yeah, or, definitely. Or just playing with what textures are involved. Yeah, um, definitely. There's a lot of give and take. This record's really interesting because there, there's a lot of give and take. There's a lot of group moments. There are moments uh, where if if you listen to it, there's three three tracks the first and the uh first and the second track are actually part of the same piece uh there was sort of a an ending that happened and then we kept playing and i thought the ending was so obvious that i would just make it into two tracks um but there's a lot of give and take there are moments where people step out and take a solo mostly me um and then there's like moments where everybody's creating these textures people working against each other um it, it doesn't really show in this audio thing but one of the interesting things I did was listening back to the gig recording, there was moments where either myself or GE improvised a melody. And I thought, there's a few moments on there, on every track, actually. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. What would happen if I went and uh, and doubled that? So I went back, and it was kind of an interesting challenge, because some of them weren't even in time. Mm. You know, like there's all this texture happening, and GE's playing this, you know, these things. So I went back and transcribed the melody, and then went and doubled it with glockenspiel, 
tone bells, which are basically like a, a glockenspiel. A glockenspiel sounds two octaves above what it's written for, so it's very high. Tone bells are only an octave above. And then there's a couple moments where I use toy piano, too. So you get this yeah. kind of uh, like choral effect, but it's using tune percussion. I thought, I thought so. I was listening to it last night. I thought, this does sound like there's some overdubbing and a little yeah. bit. Even with all the looping, I'm like, it does kind of have that yeah. vibe that there was some the, the, Really, after. the only overdubbing was, was that... Um, uh, even the field recordings that come in, you hear at points, there's like a recording of the Austin airport and there's a yeah. recording of, uh, me walking down the street in TJ while it's raining. And there's a recording of, um, a bunch of people practicing a routine on, uh, I was underneath the stage at Spreckles and there's a bunch of dancers on stage. So the very last track starts with this right. clock, 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 and it's actually the people. Uh, so all of those were actually done in real time. I had a, uh, Oh, well, you didn't put those in after. The no. I, um, so I, the, my rig for this was vibraphone. I had, um, an amplified Embira. I had an iPad running field recordings, and I had a little keyboard, uh, a circuit bent keyboard, which means you f- screw around with the uh, the different circuits and sort of rewire them. And occasionally you hear this weird kind of arpeggiator, and that's that keyboard. So that's my stuff. But all that was done live. The only thing that was really overdubbed was those doublings. And you hear it, I think there's one melody doubled in each track. That's cool because that kind of helps glue everything together. Yeah, and definitely. I love doing stuff like that. I mean, especially on music like this where it's all there's a lot of electronics anyway. Why not add exactly. stuff if you think it needs to be there? So yeah, and um, there's a lot of uh, I, I like that color. I mean, it's interesting as a band leader as of playing the vibraphone. Um, it's really easy. Clearly, you've got your kind of precedence of like modern jazz quartet or these different things where, you know, it's a very clear indication of like, oh, the vibraphone plays the melody and that's why mm-hmm. he's the main thing. But in, in other context, sort of extending that role to like an entire mallet family. Just like, you know, like you would do, you've got all these different saxophones or a guitar player do where they're stacking sounds, you know, everybody does this on their different instruments. But figuring out what that means as a vibraphonist is kind of an interesting challenge. Yeah. But when you were doing the overdubs, did you like wear a tuxedo? Like to, to get that modern jazz quartet vibe? Yeah. For every overdub, it was or like wear, a tuxedo. Wear the, the blazer with, uh, with the emblem MJQ emblazoned yeah. on the breast. Because they, they would wear a tux to every concert. Yeah. You know, Mill Jackson was actually like a, a badass pool player. So what I did in between takes was I, I went out and I sharked some people for money and then I'd come yeah. back and do another take. That works. That definitely works. I mean, you gotta, you know, helps to pay the band. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was. It's true that I think Milt wasn't really down for a lot of that MJQ stuff. He really just wanted to swing and just play hard, play more hard driving bebop. And I think John Lewis was the guy that that wanted to keep it all dialed in. But yeah, I don't. I don't want to get off on I too mean, much I, of a tangent. I always thought I, they were like chamber music jazz. But yeah, totally. I don't. I don't, I don't think I was, that's totally what I'm talking about. I mean, like the choice in music and stuff is an interesting thing, but the the role of the vibraphone in a group because. You know, Milt was very obviously a horn player. Like, he didn't comp behind people. He took a solo, and then he stepped off the stage, and somebody else took a solo. Yeah. Um, It's true of Bobby Hutcherson as well. There is some stuff in the 60s. I mean, Out to Lunch is a really great example of him where he's uh, he's comping a little bit, he's a little bit accompanimental, and then he's also a soloist. Um, and then you have the total polar opposite, which would be like Gary Burton, who's playing four mallets, and he's basically the, the piano player of the group. I mean, that shifted a little bit by the time you get to the 80s. He's playing the 70s with Chick Corea, but like in his own groups, he brought in a piano and stuff. But early on, I mean, his first record is just trio. There's mm-hmm. no chordal accompaniment, so he's playing all these chords. It's interesting to figure out, like, okay, am I just a, you know, am I just another horn player? Is this a group where I'm going to have guitar? And and I've done different things over the years. I have this group, Passengers, which was set up to play with. Well, originally it was set up to be Fender Rhodes and Vibes and see how that meshed with electric basses. That was when Nazo was playing. And then since then it's been guitar. And then there's also, I had a group called Everything After, where it was uh, piano and vibes. And uh, originally Melanie Grinnell was playing and then Rick Helzer took over. So that was like how, how you voice those things together. How does that meld together? And then I've had other, other groups where it's like woodwinds, like 
okay, right. flute and vibes, bass clarinet right. and bass, <laughs> you know, that's a cool combo. Or like, I don't, I don't own a marimba, but like, I love bass clarinet and marimba. So a lot of these bands are sort of set up um, sonically to match up in certain ways. Like right. I, I, one thing that has never made sense is organ and vibes to me. Mm. <laughs> that sound, and no offense, I love organ, I love vibes, but those two would, together yeah. make any sense to me. You just um, wouldn't hear the vibes. <laughs> there's yeah. other combinations that like have never, I've never really uh, investigated because they don't really, I don't know, for some reason. It's like, you know, putting yogurt and chili or something, you wonder. Mm. Is that the best? Like, Actually, like, I've I've literally done that. And that is really good. It is. Yeah, I'm not making that up. Wow. It's good. Okay, maybe I need to do an organ gig with vibes. Yeah, no, I, I was referring <laughs> to yogurt and chili, but no, I would uh, I would steer clear of the of the of the former, but definitely indulge in the latter. Uh, um, well, let's let's get in a little bit to your other new record. <clears throat> you mentioned the Hunter's Moon with Vinnie Golia, and for all our listeners out there in Internet Land, you can check out more of the music. By going through Nathan's website, casterandpollocksmusic.com. And you can also get through to Bandcamp there. Yeah, nathanhubbard.bandcamp.com has all these recordings. Oh, yeah. You can stream them, or uh, there's physical copies if people still buy CDs, or you can buy digital files, or you can just stream. Or so you can get all, plenty all of options. You get all your records on. Uh, you know, I don't have, uh, there's, a, there's quite a few from the past that I don't have up on Bandcamp, but I. I don't think there's any record that's sold out. I still have CDs going all the way back to the early Return to One records, mm-hmm. Cosmologic records. Uh, most of the more recent stuff, all the Encinitas and Everything After records are up there. The large ensemble record, Fiercely Dreaming's up, and of course these records are up. But yeah, Hunter's Moon was kind of a similar situation where it was a live gig and... Um, kind of strange situation i had hired a guy to come record and then he literally flaked on me the day of so i ended up recording it all myself oh wow and um was it a live it was a live in front of an audience live gig yeah it was a live gig it was that infamous gig where like four people showed up and robert bush wrote an article mentioning how few people were there (laughs) uh but it turned out really good vinnie's got a pretty like um one of the first duo things I, you know, I played with him going back to maybe '03 or something. But the first dude thing I'd played duo with him was maybe 2012. And he comes up right before the gig and he says, "I don't like to stop, and you introduce." I said, "Okay." So we just play a complete set. Usually that's about an hour. Right. For this recording, Hunter's Moon, it's about an hour and ten. ten yeah. And we actually cut it like the recording had a couple mishaps. And I cut out about the first 30 seconds. But there's no editing. There's no overdubbing. All the field recordings that were used, all the samples that were used were done live. Um, And there's sort of a thought. Vinny's sort of one of those classic kind of out of that lineage of John Coltrane and Anthony Braxton and Roscoe Mitchell of the the multi-woodwind. So he plays all the flutes, all the clarinets, all the saxophones, and he brings, you know, 10, 12 instruments. So for that gig, I thought um, I would sort of expand a little bit. And so I had a drum kit, but then I also had a couple homemade instruments. You hear at the very beginning of the recording, I'm playing these uh, modified bell plates that I made, and I had brought uh, a rack of tuned gongs, and then I also had a bunch of my field recordings. So that was my setup and that kind of idea of like um like multi-instrumental virtuosity having all these different sounds yes we definitely want to talk more a little bit later about the about the instruments you create for your own music but uh on this subject uh how did you first meet up with Vinny in the first place how did you connect i first i first heard Vinny. uh i'm a huge fan of a, a a guy named brad dutz who's a percussionist in la and i had bought a couple of his records and uh there's a record he put out called Crin, and the first track, I believe, is just Vinny overdubbed, and he's playing bass clarinet and soprano. I had sort of heard his name maybe around. This is, I'm talking like mid-90s. Like, I graduated 94 from high school, and by the time I got to San Diego State in 96, I'm pretty sure I had heard his name. And then he was coming down to play in San Diego a fair amount. I saw him play. He had a really interesting quartet with Mike Wofford. Roberto Miranda and Billy Mintz. That was a really kind of eye-opening concert. And I saw him, Stuart Liebig had a trio with him and Billy Mintz. And I saw him in a couple other contexts. So I, I had sort of got to know him from there and talked to him a little bit, bought some records from him, became aware that he was doing large ensemble stuff. This was before I was... 
I was writing kind of tunes, but not writing any large orchestrations or anything. And so he's been like a big influence over the years and a really good guy, uh, a great writer, a great performer, a great uh, woodwind performer. And then uh, my friend Scott Walton was playing with him in his quintet. And through that, he came down and played at The Space, which was a performance venue that the Tremor Flora Collective ran. And we played trio. And we played a bunch of times over. I've done... I did like a sex tech gig with him. I played in L.A. with him and Stuart Liebig and Chris Tyner. That was a fun gig at uh, Cafe Metropole. So we've done a bunch of stuff over the years. Uh, when I got back from Arizona, one of the things I was, uh, I wanted to play with a bunch of people that I hadn't played with. This is like 2011, 2012, and Vinny was one of those people where I realized I wanted to play with him more and... Um, there's sort of a tradition he comes out of and, and a thing he does that I, I don't know anybody else that's doing that. So it's always a challenge, but it's like, you know, it's one of those like step up situations, step up and you play as best as you can and hopefully it mm-hmm. works out. <laughs> so yeah, it forces the mind to go in like new and creative directions. And yeah, totally. It's, I mean, uh, on sort of a simplistic level, you're just like checking in like, okay, am I, am I, I doing okay? <laughs> You're like, how am I? Have I been working on anything? Like, how is this? Is this better than the what last time do? I checked in? You know, like clearly we're all like doing gigs and we're practicing and we're doing all these things, and then occasionally you have to be like, what am I working towards? Yeah. You know, and so these kind of things where I can play, like Vinny, you know, could play for an hour solo and it'd be happening the whole time. It took me a long time to be able to do that, where I can just be like, go, and it's all good. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. it's not good. I mean, clearly, you know. We did this weird gig. We had this weird timeline because normally we just play and there's no stop or anything. And we had this weird timeline where we had to stop at some point and it kind of messed with us. It was weird. Um, I listened to the gig recording and you could tell there was like some, we were more worried about when we had to stop than like what we were doing. Right. So it's it's never perfect, but it's always like, you know, playing someone at that level is always a, a good challenge. So in that band he was in with Wofford, just going back to that, it was intriguing me. Are there any recordings of that? I would love to hear I, Vinny I think that with was Mike just, Wofford. I think that was just a one-off gig. That's, that's the cool thing about Mike nuts. Wofford is that Mike that. Wofford played with you know all of our favorite jazz legends, and then also Mike Wofford is like the biggest Cecil Taylor scholar I know. And yeah, somebody that you can talk to about uh, all sorts of different things and has really run the course. I mean, he's on this record with Shelley Mann from seventy. 74 or something where he's playing fender Rhodes and it's kind of this bitch's brew very weird space and he <laughs> sounds amazing on that just as amazing as he does on like his solo records or crazy all yeah. these different things i'm a huge fan of there are, yeah there are a few things that i've seen him credited on and I, I was just completely surprised and then you listen to it and you're saying yeah i know <laughs> but he has such great ears he's such a great player you could put him in any situation. I saw yeah, his name definitely. on the, on the Mel Torme's Coming Home record. Yeah. He's credited as playing organ on that. <laughs> no way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the breadth of what he's accomplished is, is pretty amazing. He's a, he's a nice guy, too. He's always, you know, stopped and talked to me. Just wonderful player. Yeah, definitely. I saw him a few weeks ago with, with Jim Plank, and it was a great little trio. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's in the '90s. I started going out to see concerts, and that was that was like the house rhythm section. Mike Wofford, Jim Plank, and uh, Bob Magnuson. So um, I sort of grew up listening to those guys, and I appreciate them all to this day. Yeah, well, getting into this track from from Hunter's Moon, you told us your setup. Maybe you can tell the listeners what was Vinny's arsenal of horns oh, for this game. I'd ha- you what know, exactly did he bring? <laughs> you know, it was funny. We recorded this thing, and then I, I contacted him, and I said, hey, I want to put this out. Is this cool? And he said, yeah, it's cool. And I said, can you send me the list of what you played? And he said, I don't remember. You know, he was like, and I actually, I, I have a couple pictures, but he played in this. This is a little edit. Uh, what we're listening to, all these things are little edits of a larger piece. This record is the first time I've ever put out a record that's just an hour and ten minutes straight, one track. Mm-hmm. And um, so... Uh, How did you fit that onto one side of a record? Uh, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How did you get that it on It must have been like a really big piece we of actually, vinyl. We actually... You know, the, the issue with digital uh, downloads is... Um, you can put up, like in, with Bandcamp, you can put up as many tracks as you want for a record. Like you could have a record with 200 tracks, mm. but each track has to be a certain size. And this was actually too big to put up on Bandcamp. Mm. So but I was yeah. actually like, there's this midpoint where we both stop playing and there's this uh, field recording of uh, 
of Biosphere 2 out in Arizona. And I thought maybe I would just break up the record with that. But I really wanted to have it the whole way through. Uh, Vinny definitely, for this section, I believe he's playing F mezzo or some mid-range saxophone. But he plays everything from tubax, which is the sub-contrabass saxophone. He plays a little bit of crumb horn, a bunch of alto flute, some soprano... I think I, th- I said F mezzo. I'd have to look. There's a there's quite a list, and he uses all of them over the thing. Yeah, I I play with you a lot, and I've seen a lot of different types of uh, music you've written out. Uh, was there a structure to this, or was it entirely free improv? No, this or? is totally improv. Okay, yeah, that's right. I, it seems to be Vinny's uh, duo. I've seen him do it with other groups as well, and clearly Vinny writes a lot of kind of thick, naughty music. I, his large ensemble music is really amazing. Um, That's but an excellent use of the word naughty, by the way, if I just may compliment you on that. Naughty. naughty. It is. Uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, his... With a K. If, did you guys hear the jazz live? I mean, some of those themes are... It's really interesting, the difference between him and... Uh, if you put him against, like, Tim Burns' music, which has these long lines and these things, and, and Vinny has these, like, really, like... Not not wait. I'm saying naughty like K N O T T Y. Yeah, yeah okay. that's what I mean. Because then I realize it could be like naughty like oh you're bad. No, 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 you're no. A I was saxophonist. Anyways. I was fully supporting your use of, uh, <laughs> of an arboreal analogy. Anyways, th- that recent jazz live where he came down with with his uh, L A band, I thought was yeah, really Gavin interesting because he's very yeah. small little. Um, themes and stuff that would peek out and and clearly he has these longer forms and stuff but a lot of this stuff is is really compacted in these really tight little phrases which actually kind of speaks because if you listen he plays a lot of things like that too yeah all right well let's let's check out this track once again we're here with nathan hubbard and you can check out all the stuff on nathanhubbard.bandcamp.com and this is nathan and vinnie golia from hunter's moon and this will take us into the jazz forecast
This is San Diego Sessions, your inside perspective on the SD jazz scene. Hi, I'm Darcy, and here's your jazz forecast for October 9th through the 15th. Monday, October 9th, guitarist Louis Valenzuela hosts his regular Monday night jam session at Rosie O'Grady's Normal Heights from 9 p.m. to midnight, no cover, 21 and up. Wednesday, October 11th, trumpeter Gilbert Castellanos hosts his regular Wednesday night jam session at Panama 66, a mainstay in San Diego for decades. Listen to the best jazz San Diego has to offer right in the middle of Balboa Park. Music from 8.30 to 11.30 p.m. Drop by early to see the Young Lions play from 6 to 8 p.m., featuring up-and-coming musicians from around the city. No cover in all ages. Thursday, October 12th, vocalist and guitarist Lorraine Castellanos is joined by bassist Dean Hewlett at Panama 66 for an every second and fourth Thursday gig, music from 6 to 8 p.m. Jason Hanna brings his trio to the U.S. Grant from 8 to 11 p.m. Friday, October 13th, singer Lillian Palmer performs at the Hanlery Hotel in Hotel Circle from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m., joined by pianist Anthony Smith, bassist Doug Walker, and drummer Richard Sellers. No cover and parking is validated. The Friday Happy Hour is a regular series put on by Holly Hoffman, so stay tuned for more concerts. The Paul Seaforth Stan Lawrence Quintet pay tribute to Sonny Rollins and Horace Silver at Dizzy's at 8 p.m. $15 cover, all ages. Saturday, October 14th, singer Whitney Shea brings her quartet to the La Valencia Hotel in La Jolla from 6 to 10 p.m., no cover. The Bradley Layton Quartet plays Northern Spirits Restaurant in San Marcos at 7.30 p.m., and composer Joe Garrison brings his mixed ensemble Night People to Dizzy's for the premiere of his latest work, The Broken Jar, featuring Lori Bell on flute, Robert Seligman on clarinet and bass clarinet, Jane Zwerneman on French horn, Brian O'Donnell on bass trombone, Melanie Grinnell on piano, and Chris Duval on bass. Music starts at 8 p.m. Tickets are $20 or $15 for students or military. Sunday, October 15th, French jazz pianist and composer Tony Tixier performs with his New York City trio at Dizzy's. Music at 8 p.m. Subscribe on iTunes or listen online at DirtyBoulevardRecording.com. We're back on San Diego Sessions here at Dirty Boulevard Recording Company. That was the Jazz Forecast, and previously you heard a segment from Hunter's Moon, which was Nathan Hubbard duet with Vinnie Golia. And under the Jazz Calendar, you heard a track called Deadpan from Nathan Hubbard's trio featuring Kevin Jones on guitar and Jerome Salazar on bass. But now, Ed has a segment we like to call the San Diego Seven. Rapid fire. Rapid right. fire questions. These are seven uh, largely rapid fire questions. Yes. We'd like to, uh, you to answer them from the top of your head oh, no. and the bottom of your heart. Oh, no. This yes. could be bad. This could be. Um, <laughs> number one, uh, what did you have for breakfast this morning? I don't eat breakfast. That's easy. <laughs> Perfect. I mostly don't either, although I did this morning for whatever reason. Number two, what was your first job? Does have to be music. What's your first job? My first job that I got paid for mm-hmm. uh, was actually music. I started playing coffee shops in high school. Cool. Yeah, super dorky. You did take a summer job down at the carnival by the wharf? Uh, what I should have done was gone to work for my father, but I never did. Um, number three, what's your spirit animal? Ooh. Ooh. I figured you'd be a good person to ask this. Uh, ooh. The Hephalumpagus? I don't know. The Hefa is it like Hephalump of Moosels? Yeah. It's not Hephalumps of Moosels? Yeah. The I thing from the, the drug trip thing from uh not Bambi Dumbo. Yeah, Hephalumpagus. Yeah. yeah. Nice. <laughs> no, I I think that that's a good answer. Put some points on the board for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like score one, Nathan. Uh number four. Do you have a favorite type of spice, like Thai, Mexican, Indian, Korean, horseradish, something else? 
Ooh, I am a huge fan of uh, pretty much all spicy peppers. Um, I, maybe not so much by region, but I've been cooking a lot with turmeric. Hmm. It's been kind of finding its way into everything, much to my wife's chagrin. <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, that sounds delicious. Uh, I'm a big fan of all spices, too. Uh, number five, who is the Scarlet Woman? Uh, uh, okay, there isn't a Scarlet Woman. The Scarlet Woman is a reference to um, uh, spiritualist and mythist uh, Alistair Crowley. Oh. And the Scarlet Woman is actually sort of, uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but basically the Scarlet Woman is, I'm totally not doing this justice, it's the woman that he's looking for. It's the archetype of the woman he wanted. So it's kind of a reference uh, that Ed's talking about a record that we did called In Pursuit of the Scarlet Woman, which was a actually response to a recording I did called This Middle Ground. And all of the, re- the songs are murder ballads written from a female perspective. So I thought rather than just calling it murder ballads or something, I would reference back to some different stuff. But there is not actually a real Scarlet Woman. Plus, there's that there's that Nick uh, Nick Cave record, murder ballads. Yeah, I mean, there's a long tradition of murder ballads. Oh, yeah, with Johnny Cash and all years, these different yeah. people and stuff. Yeah. Staggerly and that whole thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Number six, in the spirit of October, do you have a favorite scary or horror movie? You know, I was super into horror movies when I was a teenager, and I don't really watch them anymore. Although I did recently watch the first Nightmare on Elm Street. My my daughter is eleven, and it was on. Uh, we didn't watch all of it, but it was kind of funny because she was completely taken aback how terrible all the effects are. Oh wow! <laughs> so it kind of turned into like this. It's almost like a comedy. <laughs> I heard that about the new It, the Stephen King It, that it was just funny, like the effects yeah. were so bad that people were laughing instead of being although, afraid of although, it. Although, you know, the other night, I, oh, this was a couple of weeks ago, but the original It came on and it was pretty late and I was, you know, working on the laptop and and at some point I was like, that movie is like kind of flawed in a lot of ways, but kind of creepy. At some point I had to turn this off because I was like, I'm going to have nightmares if I leave this on. Even just in the background, this is going to come up into my psyche. Yeah. So there's yeah. something really creepy about that original one. And I don't know if it's just because it came out and I had read the book, you know, and it came out when I was a kid or something. But yeah, I'm not really interested in seeing the whole gore, like super crazy splatter thing that's been happening in the last... Portrait porn and that whole... Yeah, I'm all of that stuff that. doesn't really excite me too much. I, uh, yeah, that, there's there's a difference in scary movies between like quick jump scares. They're like kind of the the junk food of of scary movies. But then like there's a deep seated creepiness and and more insidious factor in like the really good ones that like hangs with you for the rest of your life. But yeah, just a big thing jumping out and scaring you. That'll freak you out, but it won't. Yeah, I'd rather watch Hitchcock any day over like Saw or Hostel yeah. or one of those things where yeah. it's just about blood and torture and what, stuff. What I don't like scary movies. One of my favorite movies of all time is the original Haunting. Yeah. And it, you don't see anything and it's so scary because the actors and weird lighting and it's just the whole mood of it. Yeah, All right. Definitely. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> that, that's a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I'm sure there's a, there is one actually. There's a podcast for everything. Yeah, there's probably a, yeah. <laughs> number seven. Damn it! Now I'm gonna have to do so much editing. And number seven, our old standby. Bacon. Oh, I thought that was like bacon or. Yeah, of course. All right. Come on. All right. All right. I'd just say pork in general. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, that's uh, what is that? Six six three. Six three bacon, six three for bacon. Yeah. Team bacon, nice. I'm keeping score. Yeah, well, quit inviting those vegans on this show, bro. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> well, again, in case you haven't been listening to the whole show, we're here with Nathan Hubbard. But Nathan, I I wanted to to ask you a little bit about your sound. Like as a percussionist, you have your own sound on drum set and and different instruments. But what's really interesting is you've you've built a lot of instruments and modified even modified your drums and cymbals. Um, w- when did you start building stuff? And and can you also just tell us a little bit about your approach to the kit or percussion in general? Sure. I started well. I started playing drums in sixth grade in the school band, and I got a drum kit in like eighth grade or something. It was this huge rock kit, and uh, I sold that and 
bought a smaller kit because I got into Max Roach, and then through that I got into Tony Williams and and later on Elvin Jones. But modification has kind of always been there because, you know, you, your dad buys you a drum kit and this stand doesn't work. And uh, my f- grandfather started a sewer contracting company. So I've been around tools and grinders and saws and all that stuff all my life. So it was pretty natural to be like, okay, I just need to like cut that stand down or I need to modify this or I need to change that. Those were all really early on things that happened. And that also like, you know, I was a skater in high school, so we like built a skate ramp. So, and I took wood shop and things like that. So I, I'm not confessing that I'm the best at those things, but I'm comfortable doing all those things. So I've built a bunch of different stuff over the years, both acoustic and electric. The acoustic stuff is mostly, um, started out as modifications of metal instruments, uh, some of them industrial stuff, some of them using pipe, some of them using uh, different types of metal. Uh, and then the uh, electric stuff started out when I, f- I had an electronic drum pad and it wouldn't work. It stopped working, so I took it apart and I figured out that there's just a contact mic inside and I could buy those at Radio Shack. So I started uh, contact miking different instruments. I had these huge hanging grates and stuff that I hung from this... Um, sort of rack I built. And then I realized I need to bolt it all together. So I built all these smaller instruments. All this stuff is on my website. If you go to the tech page, there's a build thing and there's these different things. Um, So that was the start for me. In terms of drums, I grew up um, being super into Max Roach and then Tony. And then I got very much into Roy Haynes, Barry Alshul, Ayrto on the first few Return to Forever records, people like that. So I was really enamored with the flat ride sound. And then, of course, I was listening to a ton of like Joey Barron and Jim Black. So you put that together. So my kit was always kind of like a more open bass drum, toms that were a little bit lower than the usual bebop range, and pretty dry, smaller cymbals. I was really into 18-inch cymbals for a long time, ride cymbals. So dry cymbals, pretty open bass drum. And that happened for a long time. If you listen to the Return to One records, if you listen to the Cosmologic records, even the Arc Trio record, that was sort of my sound for a long time. And then at some point, I just um, I started getting into different drums, different tunings, and I worked at a drum shop, so I was buying a fair amount of equipment. I started buying more snare drums. And so the, the sound kind of changed, uh, washier cymbals, bigger cymbals, now the point where I pretty much always use... 22-inch cymbals, larger, more kind of a washy K sound, Zildjian kind of sound. Uh, And then in terms of tuning, the bass drum continues to modify a little bit, and I've been using a lot of really different tuned snare drums um, in jazz and is also in like beat music and different things like that. And then clearly like a lot of modified stuff. I've been doing a ton of stuff where I've been modifying... I mean, it started out where I, people would give me broken cymbals just as like, you know, check this out. And I would cut right. them up and I'd make them into wind chimes and stuff. Or I would like cut the cracks out of them and give them back to them because uh, the family business, there's a lathe. So I could lathe down these cymbals. And a lot of them turn out, you get these smaller cymbals that are like bell cymbals. And then recently I've been making these cymbal chains, which use little pieces of uh, cymbals and a chain that are kind of like a, it's like a lighter version of a wind chime or something. And I've then seen, I've seen several drummers around with those that you've made. Yeah, yeah. and the Nathan I'm, Hubbard's and, signature cymbal well, chain. And you know, I'm broke AF, so I've been like selling this stuff as much as I can. Um, yeah, like Charlie Chavez, Matt Smith bought some. There's a bunch of people in LA that have them. I sell them on the internet. So that's been the main thing is those cymbal chains, and then I've also been doing these um, modifications on cymbals, and as well as bell plates where I take a cymbal and cut segments out of it. So uh, on a thicker cymbal, it almost turns into halfway between like a, a bell cymbal and then a go-go bell. Um, so I've been using those, uh, depending on the gig, I'll bring that stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm a firm believer in extended percussion and using these things on gigs. I've never, uh, clearly some gigs, you just show up with a well-tuned drum kit and some cymbals and you play, but if there's a possibility to add these extra sounds, I hear those sounds. I want to use them. I understand certain people like don't like that on the gig, but even if it's just having a couple basket shakers for bossa novas, you know, this is kind of the classic thing or having these different sounds, having a little jingler on the hi-hat, all these sounds. So depending on the gig, um, I'll bring different things. Clearly, like uh, a gig with Vinnie Goli, I'm going to bring a bunch of extra sounds, and I've got a bunch of stuff. 
what's what's neat is is tons of drummers will hack up drums or like put new hardware on their drums or or change sizes of shells or even modify the wood but you're one of the only guys i know who's out there lathing metal and actually modifying symbols and changing the tone of symbols or looking at a symbol as something you can hack up in in general <laughs> so yeah that's well and i that's I, insane you have to make I, me some stuff for me to yeah, bash on yeah and i try i mean I've had people come over and say, hey, I don't like this symbol. Like, what can you do to it? And I said, well, if you don't like it, you should sell it and buy a symbol you like. Yeah, it's, no, it's going to totally like, change it once somebody, you start cutting you know, into it. I, so. I, 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 like, let me be clear. Like, mo- almost 99.9% of the time, if I'm doing something to a symbol, it's because it's already broken. Right. You're, you're not a symbol plastic surgeon. You, you're <laughs> well, you're, you're see, repurposing. The, I, I bought this 24-inch ride recently, and it was on Craigslist. And, it, like, you know, I've been looking for – everybody's always looking for these different symbols and symbols that function and I've been looking for a larger symbol with a little bit more wash and I thought it was what I wanted and I got it home and I played it on a couple gigs and it's totally not what I wanted and I've been trying to sell it and it's a huge symbol and I want to get a certain amount of money for it and I can't get that money so I just decided okay I'm kind of stuck with this symbol I'm not going to sell it for like you know half of what I paid for it I'm going to modify it to make it sound so this is the first time I've actually done this where I've straight up put it on the lathe and I've been taking mass off that symbol previous it was always like oh I I have this cracked symbol my buddy Sal Galagas gave me like 16 broken symbols and I've been making my way through those a couple of them I cut up into hi-hats and gave back to him some of them I just cut up into symbol things. So uh, it's been an interesting process. The drum modification is hard, too. I don't have a lot of woodworking stuff right now, so it's not like I'm cutting edges or doing stuff like that. I can do a little bit of that, but most of the drum modification I leave to people that have those tools. At this point, I'm kind of focusing on the metal stuff, and the plan, I think, at this point is to get farther into welding and figure out how to build some more instruments. Yeah, what have you been building lately on the electronic side or stuff with pickups? I've seen a few pictures online, but I haven't heard any of the new stuff. Honestly, I haven't been doing the the stuff with pickups uh, got to the point where it became an albatross where every time I did a gig, somebody was like, "Bro, that thing." And I was <laughs> nobody wanted to talk about the music. Nobody wanted to talk about what happened. Nobody wanted to talk about anything except how weird that instrument was. And like understandably, like I'd be driving around town and people on the side of the road be like, "What is that?" <laughs> I think we yeah. just have a. I think we just came up with an episode title. <laughs> Bro, Bro that, what is that thing? <laughs> totally. Or the so albatross. I, I so I built some smaller ones that aren't like so um, sort of obtrusive, and I, I use those more often. But um, the the whole contact mic running through effects pedal thing that I was, you know, this was sort of my life for a long time. It hasn't been so prevalent. I, I got into circuit bending through my friend Rafter. And I've done a couple like drum modules and keyboards and stuff. So I use those occasionally. And a lot of what I've been doing with the amplified stuff is either field recordings that I've already prepared and just use either a phone or an iPad to play back. Or um, I've been doing a lot of stuff with iPhone apps. Yeah. So I have a bunch of different like. So after stuff. all that welding and all the pickups and ra- trips to Radio Shack, now now you're just busting out the phone. Yeah. Well, I mean <laughs> no, it's a different thing. Like time. no, no, it's true. I mean like there's a bunch of interesting apps where you can sample and trigger things. So I'm still using my own sounds. I'm creating my own loops and stuff. Um, and I am still using those instruments, but I, rather than trying to. I, I can't say, like, people were always like, let's get together and jam with those things. And I was always, I, the, those sounds, I didn't want to, like, take them into some sort of jam band context. I wanted them to live on their own where they could, like, have their own meaning. There's a lot of this where you get into extended sounds and people are like, oh, that sounds like a horror movie or this sounds like... And I just wanted them to be sounds and not put, like, a weird context on them. Like, oh, I'm going to play with this reggae band and make these weird sounds over it. Yeah. So, but if you are playing with a reggae band, there are other sounds that are totally possible and you can be using these loops or different things like that. So it's a little bit of a shift where I'm not doing that quite as much, but I'm still building that. The main acoustic stuff I've been building are the the modified cymbals. And then I've been starting to work on these, basically a metal version of the boo, which was a Harry Parch instrument, which is a bamboo xylophone. Oh, wow. And instead of using a long slat of uh, bamboo, it's actually using uh, a smaller piece and uh, cutting into the bamboo as a tongue. So I've been doing something similar with a metal pipe and using those. 
you know, I go into that workshop and, and do some work of fixing symbols for somebody, you know, people call me and say, Hey, can you fix my symbol? So I'll cut the symbol and then I'll do a little work where I'm messing around, trying new things, uh, different like resonant metals and stuff like that. Yeah. Were you, uh, were you at state, um, when they still had the, uh, Harry Parcher's instrument collection there? No, by the time I got there, uh, it was in New Jersey with right. Dean Drummond. But the reason I went to state was to study with Rick Helzer and to study with Danley Mitchell, who was uh, Parch's sort of right-hand man. That was sort of the, the my trajectory. I went to Palomar College and studied with Pat Piffner just out of high school to get my uh, – my stuff together. I just needed to shed and like figure out what I was doing. And then I went to state under the sole purpose of like studying with Dan Lee. There wasn't a huge talk up about Harry. He let me borrow a bunch of the scores and I would pick his brain occasionally about it. Mostly I was practicing classical marimba and playing in the jazz ensembles. But that was sort of the main focus was to sort of get close to that and get an idea. So yeah, Harry's been a huge influence. There's actually a long tradition. Uh, Ivo Derrick, Jonathan Glazier, even people like Zio Voider, some of the people that might be considered like industrial percussionists. But there's a long tradition of people building their own instruments in San Diego. Well, again, for our listeners, you can check out there quite a few pictures of some of Nathan's <coughs> instruments on his website, casterandpollocksmusic.com, if you go to the build page, right? Yeah, yeah I, I think it's actually the tech page, and then it's build. Oh, I don't know. I forget how I have it set up. But yeah, it's pretty easy to find, and there's a bunch of different things running from simple like wind chimes and um some of the more recent stuff yeah well let's get into some gigs that are coming up and then we'll take it out with one more tune uh but i know you're playing with kevin jones and harley magsino at the handlery hotel on october 20th october 20th friday october 20th Five thirty. that's a great series yeah, yeah great series over there put on by holly hoffman uh what else do you have coming up Two other things that are especially cool. I have a new band called the Gobo Trio, which is myself on vibraphone, Molly Whitaker voice, and Sharon Taylor playing cello. And we do these uh, miniatures. It's sort of a chamber group. I, I don't even know if you'd call it jazz. I don't know what it is. But anyways, it's voice, cello, and vibes. And we're doing this kind of chamber stuff. And we're playing on Ted Washington's uh, poetry series at La Bodega. And that's the 26th of October. And then also on the 17th of November, that's a Friday night, uh, myself, Ed Kornhauser, and Harley Maxina will be at Dizzy's, and Molly Whitaker is going to come sit in and do some of the Scarlet Woman stuff. So we'll be playing some uh, reductions of the Skeleton Key Orchestra record, some standards, and then some of the music from the Scarlet Woman record. Nice. And speaking of Skeleton Key, we're going to take it out with... A track from Furiously Dreaming. Oh, yeah. What is... What's the name of this track? It's actually the title track. It's called Furiously Dreaming. But once again, we've been here with Nathan Hubbard. And Nathan, thank you so much for coming in and being guest number nine on San Diego Sessions. Number Number nine. nine, Number nine. nine, Number nine. Thank y'all. Yeah. Thanks, man. (laughs) That was really cool.
been listening to the San Diego Sessions podcast brought to you by Dirty Boulevard Recording Company. Please subscribe now on iTunes or listen online at DirtyBoulevardRecording.com. Theme music composed by Ed Kornhauser. Performed by Ed with Grant Fisher guitar, Harley Magzino bass, Ian Tordella saxophone, and Charles Weller on drums. If you'd like to be a guest on San Diego Sessions, please contact us. All musical selections are used by permission of the artists. San Diego Sessions is engineered and produced by Ian Tordella at Dirty Boulevard Recording Company.